This is the Institute for Technology and Network Economics. Our podcast is called Call and Chain. I'm Piotr Spotgitter and I have on the line with me uh, my co-founder and researcher uh, Bronwyn Howell in New Zealand. Uh, we are going to discuss a very topical issue and that is the implementation and technology around 5G mobile services. Good day, Bronwyn. Good day, Pietros. So 5G has been in the news for a lot of reasons. Um, there's money, there's investment issues, there are technology issues, um, there's even health concerns in certain quarters. Um, maybe we should start with the technology. So my recollection of the history is that the 3G technology was still a partly packet switched, partly circuit switch technology. That means that it was in part like the internet where you have different packets of information that are just compiled into an ob object when they are received. And circuit switch technology, which is like an old fashioned telephone service where there is actually an open line or circuit between the parties speaking. Now, 4G already took us into completely packet switch technology. So, Bronwyn, is the switch from 4G to 5G in that respect very different? Well, in the sense that it's working with fully digital information, no. But where it does become a little, diff little different is but we're looking at now where, in fact, the handling of the traffic and the handovers from the different parts of the system happen. So, whereas with a standard internet system, uh, we have uh, modems or switches that, that control the movement of the traffic and release the flow of the data into the pipe, it now becomes important where those, those are placed in the system, where those pipes that aggregate traffic from many different places together come in the system and feed them through. So in a classic tower-based LTE 4G network, that happens at the tower where it's aggregated in and then at the internet exchange point it diverts again. But with 5G there are other places further down more deeply embedded in the system where the traffic can be generated and aggregated into different bundles to be put together in a signal or a system that goes back up into the pipe. So I was shocked to see when I checked that uh, we've had 4G actually for over 20 years already so it's really a mature technology. Uh, the speeds are quite good. Uh, so from an ordinary user's point of view, what do you think we can expect from uh, internet speeds with 5G and what are the qualitative differences in terms of the user experience? Well, I, I guess it depends on what applications you're using it for. Speed matters in the sense that it's not just about how fast the data travels in the system, but it's, it helps to determine how much data can go in. So in a typical packet switch system, the packets get released into the pipe at these various points at particular speeds, and they can compete or, can, or, in, or interfere with each other. So what we've seen even with 4G is that the speed at which these packets can be released or the way they've broken down has changed over time. So, and so we can actually put more things in the pipe because of the way the traffic is handled. Now with 5G, um, what, with 5G, the issue is not so much the speed at which the data travels, 
but the total amount of the volume of the data that's in the system at any one time. So it's it's possible with 5G now with its capabilities to deal with very much larger numbers of packets moving around the system at the same time. So while the speed itself is going to be limited by how fast a fiber optic signal can actually move down the line, the issue is that the software that controls these systems allows much more volume of data to be moving around at the same time so that the system can deal with many, many, many more applications at the same time. And that leads to better capacity in the long run. So it's basically about delivering more product to the consumer where the product here is data access. I think Absolutely. we all agree on that. That's what people want on their mobile devices. And I understand that in many places, 5G is already used, uh, including here in South Africa, for uh, fixed wireless internet access. So a lot of the densely populated parts of our cities already have 5G service available. It's often delivered in an uncapped bundle, so no limitation on the, on the volume of use. So it's basically a substitute for a home internet service. Um, is that something that you see 5G as bringing for consumers? Well, I, I, it's one area where there's the potential now to have many more people potentially served by the same infrastructure if they're using the same volume of services that they're using at the moment. But on the other hand, uh, I think the issue of 5G is it's not so much allowing more people to use the network at the same time, but is going to allow many, many more applications to be using the same networks that people are using at the same time so that we can have a lot of what we call the Internet of Things applications that will be generating a whole lot of extra information that will be moving up and down the system at the same time as people are continuing to watch their Netflix or other things. Now, to the extent that 5G is the current leading edge technology, if you were to build a new network, it's absolutely no brainer that you would build with the current latest technology, which is 5G, even if the applications people are using tend to be still the same ones that we were using on the 4G network. Because once we, in the case where we've already got good 4G networks, once a 5G network is built, we've also got the issue of how we migrate people from the old network to the new network. And at the current point in time, most of the applications that people are using are, that will migrate across to the 5G network are actually 4G capable in the first place. The future, though, for 5G is that it allows us to develop all of these other arrays of, of applications that we haven't even necessarily thought of yet and still run them on that system in the Internet of Things. So those are the elusive future applications. And I think um, we should discuss uh, investment issues a little bit later. But let me just ask you a practical question. Have you ever seen a 5G device? Personally, no, I haven't, because we don't actually have any 5G networks in New Zealand, so no one's actually been um, been willing to bring these things across yet. But we have networks in, that are being developed currently and being tested, um, uh, particularly in, um, for example, Huawei recently, uh, up until quite recently, had a testing base in Auckland where they were developing their networks. And so, no, I haven't. I haven't seen a device personally, 
but I believe that they are being used in, in a number of networks already in test stages. One of the problems that has come with this is there's still some questions about the standardisation of the way different appliances are going to be using the network. So that pertains on the one hand to handsets, but also with standards for Internet of Things applications, like for example, how um, various applications like driverless cars will be using and accessing the technology. Yeah, so, so uh, I... Keep going, Petrus. So I think that I have also not seen a 5G device in person. I think that I have seen one on a video call where the other person was using a fixed uh, mobile wireless access and I was able to see the 5G uh, uh, device in the background. But I've certainly not held a 5G uh, phone in my hand, although I suspect that one or two are available currently in South Africa. Um, since I think we have the two uh, main mobile networks as well as an internet only network offering 5G service currently. Uh, the reported speeds are about four to five times that uh, that we have on 4G uh, with good coverage. So it's appreciable, but I think uh, it's really an issue of whether the user will notice it with uh, current phone screen sizes, for example. So uh, people are watching uh, videos on their phones, especially younger people. And there, I don't think that you will get a resolution currently from 5G that's better than that on 4G. Um, what do you think about uh, those use, use applications? Well, of course, those, those are the current 4G um, killer apps at the moment. And I think, I think, though, the real prospects that we have with 5G are the opportunities that are opened up to do different things, not more of the same things or more of the same things faster than we've done previously, but those one, those other new ways of using the system and new ways that are made possible because of the different places in the network where the traffic is being generated and processed by software before it goes into the system and how it gets handled along the way. And that's, that's where particularly there's different questions being being posed about how this technology is going to work, about the different um, the different distances, for example, that the new 5G appliances can transfer the different spectrum bandwidth wavelengths and, and the powers required around them for moving the data between different places changes, which poses different questions about, for example, power supplies to towers and the spectrum ranges in which these technologies are being used and the inevitable other questions that come up as to whether in fact this new technology is moving into doing different things in different spectrum spaces that might pose some other challenges as well. One challenge in particular is whether there's going to be congestion that happens or interference that happens with the use of different spectrum bands, but also the questions of whether there are new and different health-related challenges that might come up because of the use of appliances working in different power bands or in different spectrum zones. So let's talk a little bit uh, about the spectrum and radio frequencies. So my understanding is that there's no reason in principle why 5G cannot work on the same frequencies currently used by 4G. And in fact, there are deployments even at relatively low frequencies. 
just to remind our listeners, all of this is happening in the radio frequency spectrum, which is basically where radio magnetic activity takes place. And this includes uh, the visual spectrum because the light that we see is simply another kind of uh, radio emission uh, within a certain frequency range. And what we're talking about for all kinds of usual transmissions is frequencies that are lower than that of visual light. The frequencies higher than visual light is used for X-rays and things like that. And those frequencies are so-called ionizing frequencies. So you really shouldn't be exposed to too much of that. But the radio emissions below the visual spectrum are thought not to be particularly dangerous. But a lot of people have nevertheless been concerned for health reasons, about for the, re for, for, for the reason that some of the spectrum used is in the so-called uh, microwave range for 5G. So that's in fact not very high. It's uh, something that we already have devices used, but because microwaves use it to cook, to cook food, that's caused some consternation. And I think, first of all, we need to point out that if you put something in a microwave, it's in a sealed environment. And in fact, the levels of emission inside the microwave are moderately high. Uh, when we talk about radio communications, um, the reason why we reserve spectrum, so certain frequency bands are reserved for certain companies or certain services, is simply that, they, that there should be no interference. So in fact, uh, the analogy of the signal strength that is required is perhaps to imagine that you are in a completely dark night out in the countryside where there is absolutely nothing and there's a light bulb two kilometers away, in all likelihood, your eyes will be able to see that light bulb because there's no other light in the environment. And this is what happens with reserved, the reserved spectrum. So our phones and the cell phone towers are able to communicate because the frequencies are reserved for them. So it's analogous to seeing this light bulb two kilometers away on a dark night. Um, so you really don't need a lot of power to communicate over appreciable distance. And this power also falls off uh, as you uh, increase in distance from the transmitter. So in fact, uh, things that expose you to appreciable amounts of radio frequency are most likely inside your house. And I think the most egregious of those is the Wi-Fi access point. But that is a different matter, so uh, none of this is proven to be dangerous. So um, the frequencies used for 5G or that companies intend to use are a little bit higher. This is 2.4 gigahertz, which we use for Wi-Fi as well as for microwaving our food. And most old style um, uh, garage remote controls and things like that because it's unlicensed frequency up to 3.5 gigahertz because with those those um, wavelengths you still actually get transmission over a reasonable distance so they don't they don't dissipate through absorption by objects too quickly and uh, they can still carry a sufficient amount of information so 
people who are old enough will remember the difference between uh, FM and medium wave radio. So 5G is like FM and 4G is like medium wave radios. If you understand that analogy, then you already have it. So part of what's happening is that companies are trying to acquire the frequency uh, spectrum rights to provide these new services. And that is, of course, a different matter. So here in South Africa, there has been some emergency allocation of uh, spectrum rights during the COVID ep epidemic, which is actually allowing companies to go ahead with some implementation, which is uh, very nice for the experience in that. Um, so in fact, we're actually surrounded already by radio frequency-based uh, internet services inside and outside the house. And 5G is simply, uh, if you want, perhaps merging the mobile and the Wi-Fi access point in terms of serviceability. So uh, you, you're going to get a better, better internet from the mobile, mobile tower, but it's still going to be wireless and everywhere in, in your house. Um, what are your thoughts around that? Well, I think this is this is again where we've got some interesting coalescences of issues around spectrum. Because one of the great things about 5G is that it is going to be able to allow lots of different devices to be using wireless communications to be able to move their data from hops and spaces around the place. And this has got some challenges now for the full deployment and full utilization of 5G because it's not just the issue about provisioning things from the tower onward that matters, but how the data is aggregated up from these micro sites into the um, aggregation of data that then gets moved on to the tower to be then sent on in other ways. One of the interesting challenges there is thinking about how the different spectrum bands can be allocated at that lower end for the movement of amounts of data around the house. So how we maybe be able to connect up the microwave with what it's doing or the fridge that's monitoring the supplies of things going in and out of it, collecting that data and then sending it on to some other device in the house that is then aggregating your household activities to then decide how to develop your automated shopping list that can then be sent up into this, this system and the Internet of Things up into the transmission that goes to the supermarket to generate your weekly shop that comes back. So those issues are creating some challenges for regulators with thinking about which bands of spectrum can be used for different things and particularly how different parts of the spectrum can be reallocated or re, uh, re, reused for some of those other low-end um, Wi-Fi type transmissions at the same time as they're also being able to manage the transmissions from the tower and back into the system. So that's all quite interesting and I'm not the pessimist about applications. So I think it's quite likely that the applications for which 5G will be extensively used will just emerge as the technology becomes available. And there's always innovation in this kind of thing. So um, I don't think anybody 30 years ago would have uh, predicted that we won't have maps anymore. So um, they, might have, they might have thought that maps would be downloaded one day and uh, stored and or printed at home. But uh, 
they would certainly not have, for example, envisioned um, uh, subtitling is a nice example for which you need appreciable bandwidth. So if you're using PowerPoint for a presentation and you're presenting, you can actually switch on a feature that uh, takes the voice press presentation and turns it into subtitles live. Um, but it will complain if your internet is bad because I think that that voice processing is happening in the cloud. The words are returning and this is a fantastic facility for a crowded environment, for people with hearing difficulties, etc., etc. But it requires quite a lot of connectivity and um, I think that until you see this, you don't realize how useful that can be. And I think the new networks will bring a lot of new applications as well. So, yes, but I think one of the challenges with that is deciding where, in fact, some of that processing should be happening. Should it all be happening up in the cloud and having each word shifted down through the system? Or can we think more cleverly about the distribution of the processing and the data movement? And this is where some of the really interesting things are happening with the software developments and the application developments around 5G for thinking about where in the system the data will be held and processed before it's moved on. And that creates some really interesting standardization issues for particular applications. So, for example, one of the applications where this matters is in relation to autonomous vehicles. For example, do we want an autonomous vehicle that does all of its processing when it sees obstacles to decide whether it's going to avoid them or not to be done entirely by sensors within the vehicle? Or should we use communication between vehicles going down the road so perhaps each of them transmits information to something on the roadside and then the roadside device makes its decision about what information it's going to send back so that that will assist the driverless vehicle to do its navigating of how it decides to move its path down the street. Now there's a lot of issues around that that are not yet settled either for how this technology is going to be used and until we get some certainty about how some of these things are going to happen. So standards around the use of these other aspects of the system to link in with what is in fact being expected by the systems themselves. It's really difficult for the operators to know exactly how they should be provisioning the networks when they put them out. So that affects very much the decisions about where towers should be located or where these other more micro um, transmitter type systems should be allocated around the system as well. And that's one of the interesting things where the technology has potentially been moving faster than our ability to build applications to be able to use it. To be able to use it effectively and not have congestion or interference happening requires some agreement about the, the lower level standards about how some of these things are going to be done before we can actually make the most of the higher level capabilities that 5G offers. But the, the scope of what we can do is huge and it's limited only by the, um, the new ideas that people can have on how to use it. So, um what about equipment? So there's been some controversy about the suppliers of equipment in this area. I understand now from talking with you that it's partly because the equipment is no longer as passive and placed at different uh, points in the network and possibly that the equipment is also much more soft coded than hard coded. So there's actually just a lot of software in the equipment. 
what's going on there? New Zealand is one of the five eyes countries that uh, collaborate closely on this kind of security. Um, any thoughts on that? Well, of course, it's this classic issue about who owns the information that moves around the network and who actually has the capability to um, access it and use it. One of the issues with 5G is that the software that manages the messages and the switching or the movement of the messages into different parts of the pipe is embedded in software really deep in the system. Now, because software is is difficult to it's, it's difficult for anyone to observe externally what software is doing if you can see quite clearly through a single pipe what is going in and out one can monitor it and know where it's going but in these systems where there's a network at that lower level and it's not clear exactly where particular messages are heading and software is the one that makes the decision about which pipe or which direction the message is going to go rather than an operator with a switch then the information that's captured can go to all sorts of different places that no one's necessarily able to observe or audit. This is part of the challenge that has been placed with perhaps particularly with the Chinese software, Chinese hardware developers Huawei and, and co, because if they're developing the software and it's very difficult to observe and, and audit what is happening with that software, the risk exists, of course, that that software can send important data to places other than where it might be necessary or, or desirable for it to go. Now, of course, exactly the same could occur for um, technology or software that's provided by Nokia or Siemens or um, anyone else in there. But obviously, in a world where there are geopolitical uncertainties, there is great suspicion about on both sides of the, the equation as to what sovereign powers might instruct the people programming and coding the software to do in order to get access to important information. That, of course, is what's led to these um, questioning in the particularly the Western world, the United States and the Five Eyes Alliance being um, making decisions not to put Huawei equipment in their 5G networks in order to militate against the risk that the Chinese government might acquire important data about the operation of things like um, core electricity generation systems or tax systems or important things that could uh, compromise national security. One can just think about it as a this group versus that group club and that's the way things at the moment appear to be potentially going down that path. Um, there's been a a great deal of investigation done in places like the laboratory in the UK that Huawei has funded and provided for UK engineers to inspect the software. And it's at this stage, it's quite um, it's quite unclear as to what exactly the risks are. But because the potential is there and in a risk averse world, the only safe way to operate is to avoid the risk. The United States and Australia and New Zealand have collectively decided, collectively and independently decided, that in order to participate in the Five Eyes arrangement, they will ensure that none of the equipment sourced from the Chinese companies will be put in the 5G networks to create that added surety. Of course, that has downsides because of 
the Chinese equipment has a particular cost advantage. And of course, they may also have technological capabilities. So before we close, just a remark uh, about two things that you said. One is that it is in fact not difficult, but it is technically impossible to determine exactly what software is doing. Uh, in theoretical computer science, there's something called Rice's theorem, which says uh, that all non-trivial non -trivial semantic properties of programs are undecidable. So that has a technical meaning, but uh, it's always going to be difficult. Uh, secondly, um, when I think about using an internet access service, um, I'm accessing most uh, websites uh, using uh, HTTPS, so a secure protocol, and that actually uh, relies on the browser on my device. So it relies on the browser on my device establishing an encrypted channel with the website, and the browser on my device is actually supposed to certify that the certificate um, presented by the website is authentic. Um, so the, the pipe in between actually shouldn't matter, and that's a basic uh, principle in cryptography. So I guess what we're talking about here is not the possibility that an equipment supplier with malicious intent will eavesdrop, let's say, on the content of my Gmail, because they won't be able to get into it, even if they can um, eavesdrop on every packet of data between me and Gmail. But what they will be able to know is that I access Gmail, for example, uh, I suppose. And there would be a lot of information in, for example, knowing which websites and web services Angela Merkel's phone accesses, to just uh, pull an example from the air. Um, so I guess it's that kind of security. Of course, we don't really know what is in practice uh, decryptable. But I just want to say that people should assume that the raw internet traffic is in fact being intercepted um, and should take steps to ensure that they uh, always uh, use uh, HTTPS, so SSL-based encryption, when they're browsing websites or communicating in any other way. Um, so. I'm still tr trying to understand what this security business is about. Um, although, uh, of course, the most uh, threatening aspect of it is the so-called kill switch. So the, the real question is, can a hostile government order one of its companies to remotely switch off your network? And nowadays, with everything run by software, that is exactly the kind of thing which is difficult to determine. So I have no idea whether Samsung can remotely switch off my television, which is running a Samsung operating system, and it's almost impossible to determine. And I certainly would be highly annoyed if it did. And if a company were able to switch off its equipment remotely, which is surely possible with equipment that's basically run by software, uh, that would be a very, very serious threat. Um, any final thoughts on that? Well, yes, I think that uh, in terms of, say, the ability to shut off electricity systems or essential services, I think that is one of the bigger fears that are there. Uh, that has driven perhaps some of the concern about the that, that kill switch type 
situation. But of course, with software, we never quite know what can be done. I mean, what can be copied and diverted for a future purpose. Um, again, the way that that's managed within the system and how the software handles that doesn't always allow that to be transparent either. And in a world where information is power, just because the message might be difficult to decrypt today doesn't mean it's going to be difficult to decrypt tomorrow. So we don't know quite what those incentives might be. If we knew the secrets to how people were wanting to use information, then of course we'd be able to make everything perfectly safe. There are risks involved, but there are also great potentials involved as well. And I think what, there needs to be um, some thinking about those trade-offs of thinking about the returns as well as the risks. There's been a lot of emphasis about the risks that are associated with that. But of course, equally, as long as we have the potential for, say, the Chinese firms to embed interesting things in there, there's also the potential for other firms to embed things in as well. And there's no one clean, uh, clean system at all there. We also have to think about how we develop the soft systems around the management of these. So, for example, we've relied in the past on the requirement for um, telephone or t telephony providers to yield information to um, authorities on the on the on the presentation of, for example, in, t in traditional telephone systems, we've had. So we've had things embedded in them that allow the collection of information that may be required at a particular time. Say, for example, when a law enforcement authority has a, a court order to require the company to reveal information about the use of a particular account. These same potentials now have to also be considered for what can be done and what what can be allowed and what will be required to be done for the revealing of information within 5G networks as well. Because they operate at different levels, the potential of what can and can't be revealed is also very different. So we have to think about the soft systems that govern these things as well as we have to think about the technologies and what they can be done, what can be done with them. And that's another interesting challenge that new technologies face. But of course, that's the whole thing with new technologies. They take us into places we haven't been all we can do when we face them is experiment and learn from trial and error about what works and what doesn't and then retrospectively go back and patch the things we can patch but also be aware that we can always be caught by unexpected things in the future. Uh, certainly and we're looking forward to that. So Bronwyn it's been fascinating talking to you as always. Uh, enjoy the rest of your day. And thank you Petrus and the same to you. And listeners, please visit our website www.itne.eu for further podcasts and more articles and speculation along these lines. Thank you for listening.